The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Uber had an action-packed IPO that did not go the way a lot of people expected. And in the lead-up to that, I got a visit from one of the smartest guys in the world in the field of computer vision, which is an important facet of driverless cars. This week on Fort Knox, Ina Freed of Axios joins me to talk Uber, and Amnon Shashua of Mobileye tells how he went from college professor to billionaire entrepreneur who is still a college professor, now taking on Uber. Enjoy. Uber is set to go public in the biggest IPO of a U.S. company since Facebook seven years ago. It'll probably be valued at around $90 billion. So why does it matter? Well, Facebook changed the way we socialize and the way we advertise. Google changed the way we search and watch video. Uber, as much as any company in a generation, has changed the way we work and the way we get from A to B. Not only that, it's a company that seemed to nearly implode from public scrutiny just a couple years ago. As a public company, it's about to get a lot more attention. Can investors handle that? Can society handle that? Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. With me today to talk Uber, Ina Freed from Axios. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about investing in this IPO, you probably know somebody who is, even if you're not. So we're going to break it all down on this company that's the king of the ride hailing game and also losing uh, like billions of dollars a year. Ina, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, John. So uh, ahead of Uber's debut on Friday, the question is, is this maybe the next Facebook or Amazon? Because Amazon's a, a comparison that's often getting made. It's a company that seemed to not make a lot of money at first. There were all kinds of questions about the investments they were making and the model, but they are sitting pretty now. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's really the question. Is this Amazon at the beginning when they were still a bookstore before their economics really kicked in and they have this profit engine that's just nascent and needs investment? Or is it pets.com where you just have an unsustainable business model? I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. I don't think hmm. you have the next Amazon. I think you probably have a business that if they can stay dominant in ride hailing, and ride-hailing moves to autonomous cars, then maybe the economics start to work. A lot of people that have looked at Uber's business say it just doesn't, the unit economics don't get there with human drivers. But there's like just, everything, you know, almost everything is in between in a, uh, Amazon and Pets.com. That's like... <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair I, enough. I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, having talked to Uber a bit and, and looked at it, I like it better than Lyft. I'll say that much because its economics are better than Lyft's. But I think at the same time, you got to look at these worker agitations. I hesitate to call it a strike because I call up the Uber app today when these workers are supposed to be striking. And right now, let's see, in Midtown, Manhattan, New York is a major city where this is supposed to be happening. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Uber cars available within three blocks. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be very tough. You know, I mean, part of the reason Uber works as well as it does is when there aren't people on the system, there's inducements to get people into the system. And so a strike is actually a perfect uh, sort of system for Uber's economics to work. They pay, you know, surge pricing, drivers make more, more drivers come on. Um, you know, I think, again, if you're investing in Uber, though, you're really not betting on the current moment because they are going to lose money. Um, they're going to probably have dominant scale over Lyft, um, especially globally. You know, Lyft in the U.S. you know is more of a competitor. Um, but really, the economics are you know they're competing over who can get that money losing ride. Yeah. Uh, so that's not obviously why you invest. You don't, I don't want think it's Amazon. Ninety percent of a money losing market. I'm going to come right out and say it. I don't think it's Amazon. Here's part of the reason I don't think it's Amazon. I think if we have an economic slowdown and downturn, and given how fast we've been going for the amount of time we've been going that fast, it's, it's practically inevitable. Just like Amazon had a downturn in its stock, Uber's going to have something. And it's got so many moving parts from Uber Eats and the drivers involved there and the restaurants involved on the platform um, to, to, to regular old Uber itself, to the trucking business that they're trying to grow that are potentially exposed to that. It feels to me like the investor reaction could be worse. And Amazon's reaction uh, to the dot-com bust wasn't so great itself. And so, investors, if you're going to jump into this anywhere near the IPO, you better invest in some XLAX at the same time. Now, of course, the other side of the coin for Uber is a potential bust. So what are the chances, as I've been kind of laying out here, that this IPO flops, that maybe they're pitching it the wrong way? I'm reminded of GoPro, which was pitching itself as some kind of a media company before it went public, and it's obviously not that. Ina, do you think this stock has that problem? No, I mean, I think Uber is pretty well understood. I think where it gets really tricky is, I think, if you're investing for anywhere near the long term, you're betting on two things. One, that Uber is going to make this transition to autonomous cars, where the economics get better. But more importantly, that its scale, that its approach will actually have a good share of that business. And here's where it gets tough. In today's world, Uber has scale, they have drivers, people come on, yeah. and really that's their advantage is they have a solid network, customers and drivers, it's a marketplace. When we get to autonomous cars, it's not a marketplace. So it's really about technology at that point. And then people that develop their own autonomous vehicles, companies like Waymo, may be at a better place. Uber has tried but struggled to develop their own autonomous cars. They appear to be considerably behind Waymo and perhaps some of the others. The car makers are going to want in. Once it's an autonomous vehicle, it's not a two-sided marketplace. It's a technology play, and I think they'll face a lot more competition. Well, isn't there going to be a market maybe based on slightly different things, like, uh, I don't know, uh, how quickly the car gets to you, how well they've planned the route, how nice the car is and well kept up the car is, whether they have snacks in the car. I mean, there are all kinds of things I imagine. That, how nice the robot voice is of the robot driver, you know, the software driver who's not actually physically in the car. It seems to me that there are all kinds of ways that these companies could compete. Who knows if they will? Sure, and I think we get there eventually, but you're talking about the amenities. I think the core is going to be who has the best vehicle technology and, and the economics around that vehicle are going to be far more important. Once, once you have good economics, you can throw snacks or anything else in there. You're talking literally peanuts at that point. <laughs> yeah, literally. I, and I agree with you on this much. There's nothing I see in the way Uber's describing itself 
that's just fiction or close to it. Businesses that they're touting that they haven't actually spun up. I guess the closest thing to it, perhaps, is this whole idea of autonomy, but I don't know if you really have to be counting on that in a certain period of time in order to feel like this is a worthwhile investment or valuation for that matter at all. And finally, uh, not yeah, everybody's- I mean, they have flying cars too. Flying cars might be a little bit of a futuristic bet. Yes, uh, flying car, boy. That, that whole idea, it sounded cool as a kid, but now danger from three-dimensional space kind of worries me. Maybe yeah. getting reacquainted me with too. New York traffic, uh, New York airspace, I, I find even more worrying. The, the wild card in all of this, you know, finally uh, on this part, once again, um, the drivers. Now, it, it, it seems like on the one hand, you've got people talking about flexibility. Isn't it wonderful? I've already got a car and I can make some extra money on the side. On the other hand, we see some of the drivers out protesting today. Doesn't seem to be having much of an effect on wait times on the app, but, but they're saying, boy, I can hardly afford the car. I've got to work X number of hours just to break even. It's hard to know what the truth is here, but it sure seems clear that Uber has a heck of a lot of leverage over labor in this equation, right? I think they do. I mean, I think the flexibility is a selling point. It's why they have a pretty steady labor pool. I mean, for a lot of people that either need extra income or between jobs, you know, it's one of the best options out there. But at the same time, the economics for the drivers are really tough. You know, most people aren't factoring in what they're going to owe in taxes, what they're actually paying to maintain and upkeep their car. Yeah. And some of the studies, when you factor all that in, it's not that lucrative. But, you know, it does put cash in your pocket. And it's, it's baffling to me in one sense because the labor market is so tight now. I mean, the unemployment rate is at like 50-year lows. But at the same time, this isn't... Uh, at a market that's efficiently working. The reason why these drivers aren't making more money is because investors have put enough money into Uber and Lyft that they can afford to not charge an actual profitable rate, right? So what happens when both of these companies are public and investors want them to make money and maybe there's more pressure for them to have a model that actually works day to day? Does the price go up? Do drivers actually get happier? I don't think drivers get happier because uh, I think if the price goes up, that's going to go toward making Uber less money losing, not more money for drivers. So I don't think they still get their um, cut? prices inevitably will rise. Uh, they'll get their cut. But, you know, don't forget a lot of the economics right now are to get people using the system. So mm. the drivers are getting paid more than Uber could naturally afford to pay them if it were also trying to make money. So if Uber has pressure to make more money, I don't think you're going to see drivers getting paid more. I think you'll see their cut go up. Um, I think you will see rates rise um, to some degree, especially as Uber squeezes out public transit in some cities, as people uh, give up their car and bet on being able to use ride sharing. I think you will see some elasticity, but not a ton. At a certain point, somebody says, is it worth it for me to walk? Is it worth it? So it's a, it's a very interesting and delicate balance that I think we'll only know exactly where that lies when we see some experiments. And, and that's it's one crazy thing Uber has been really good at. Right, because uh, if we get an economic downturn, the supply of drivers probably going to go up. I mean, maybe not the supply of quality drivers, but there'll be more people wanting to drive. So is that going to put any kind of downward pressure on wages or you know, will it find some natural equilibrium point? I don't know. Well, it's time for digits spotlighting a few numbers out of Uber's IPO. Um, 
that caught my eye this week. Siri has got the first. Siri. 90 days. 90 days. Now, if Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi can keep the company's valuation above $120 billion for 90 days, he's going to receive quite the payday, $100 million. You know, I've seen all kinds of executive pay packages rolled out, and they talk about how, you know, they're doing it for the health and to have the interests aligned with shareholders. I mean, I, I get the whole valuation thing. People thought Uber's valuation was going to be up in the 120. But this seems horrible. For, you know, keep its valuation up around 120 billion for 90 days. I mean, th there are all kinds of ways you could do that uh, that aren't necessarily great for the health of the company long term, it seems to me. Well, and also, you know, it's one thing to reward an executive stock performance over time because you're talking about creating long-term value. But here we're really talking about a short-term thing which really isn't in the executive's control, certainly not using any natural tools at their disposal. So, I mean, that sort of thing concerns me. I mean, why, why would you make that what you compensate your executive? I mean, doing all kinds of things that Dar has done, whether he's done a good job or not, like, you know, changing the image, you know, driver satisfaction, those things, he's done a lot of things, but keeping the stock price at an arbitrary level for 90 days, that doesn't seem like the sort of thing you want to tie compensation to. Uh, you know, it's certainly not something I've heard of being used before. I mean, and can you imagine $100 million for 90 days over a $120 billion valuation? Like, what kind of fortitude do you have to have, like, as a person, if the stock is sitting at $119 billion valuation and you've got maybe the inkling of some good news and you don't know how it's gonna pan out for the next half of the year, to not say anything on the call or to, or to be conservative in a way that's perhaps judicious if you've got $100 million hanging in the balance? I mean, it's a strange set of incentives. Again, it's not what you usually see boards and companies choose to incentivize their executives for the reasons you've outlined. And also, as an executive, it's not really, I don't really want to be evaluated on something that I have that little natural control over. Again, as you say, I could do a bunch of artificial things that might temporarily do it, but in general, I want to be compensated on the things that I have control. Am I making progress to making Uber a long-term healthy business? Um, am I helping shareholders over time? Yes. But over a 90-day period, that's that's not really, again, in my natural control, unless I do something artificial. $100 million. Wow. All right. Siri, <laughs> hit us with that second digit. 10,000. Ah, 10,000. That's technically five digits. It's also 10,000 trips. That's how many rides Uber serves out per minute. More than 10,000 rides a minute. We did the math. You know, that, that is a, a, an extraordinary number of rides, especially given all the stuff we've been talking about, about how the model isn't exactly profitably working right now. So uh, if Uber, as it now exists, pricing all of that goes away, people 10,000 times a minute are going to have to make a different kind of decision about how they're getting from A to B, or at least a different kind of calculation about how much that's going to cost, right? 
Well, I mean, it really has reshaped the way we think about transportation, especially in large cities, obviously. Um, some of the hubs like New York and San Francisco, but also, you know, car-centric places like L.A. that didn't have cabs. You really couldn't rely on anything other than a car. I think it really has transformed how we look at transportation. Um, it's made car ownership a different equation. So people that had two cars going down to one, people that were on the fence about owning a car. Um, so I think, you know, certainly Uber and, and its competitors, but really Uber, for the most part, deserve a lot of credit for adding an additional option into the transportation transportation equation, especially when you look at, you know, overcrowded cities, cities with yeah. big urban traffic problems. But I tell you Although what, you know, there's he, studies that say Uber makes traffic <laughs> worse, too. In both ways, yeah, people were arguing that uh, Uber made traffic worse in New York. Turns out a lot of that was construction. But I'll tell you the tragedy to me. I, I grew up in New York for the first roughly eight and a half years of my life. Spent some time riding the subway. I ride it now in between work locations, for example. And the subway, it's an amazing, wonderful thing. Relatively cheap, can get you across enormous distances for pretty cheap. Uh, enables people to live out in Queens, out in the Bronx, commute into work in Manhattan, deals with cost of living issues, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, New York's public transit system, the subway, is crumbling. DC's doing the same. But at the same time, we've got this private model that doesn't exactly work from an economic standpoint, at least not naturally in the way that we've seen. We see it taking over to that extent. And it makes you wonder, why can't society figure out how to put the right kind of investment into public transit without wasting it? Why does it have to be Uber? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing some of the early complications of that. Now, I think a lot of the crumbling infrastructure predates Uber. I think it's a lack of investment by yeah, a, a lot of these cities and saying, regions. But I exactly, think exactly. But if rich people, you, you hit people, a bigger problem. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's, it, I mean, that's going to be the huge issue. Is if the the wealthy people that have choice and flexibility here choose Uber, the people that rely on public transit still need it, and there's less money going into those systems. That's a potentially huge issue. We're already seeing it. Certainly in San Francisco, I take public transit a lot of the time, but I take it less than I do did before Uber. I take Uber um, and other ride-sharing options some of the time, and that's taking money out of the public transit system. Because there are people taking a dump in the BART over there. I mean, I lived in San Francisco, too. I know, I know the issue, but, but that's part of my issue, too, is that super-rich people are pouring their money into investments like Uber, where the economics don't exactly work, right? But the, the tax revenues either aren't coming in or they're being wasted once they do come in to actually fix and maintain the infrastructure that currently exists. I'm off on a little bit of a tangent, though it's all kind of transportation and public relations. But anyway, uh, final digit. Siri, give it to us. 75 million. 75 million. That's the total amount of drivers Uber currently, I would almost say employees, but they're not employees. They're kind of associated with uh, this number of um, riders. Uh, you know, there, there are a whole lot of people in the world. There are a lot more people that they could touch, right? I mean, there are. I think to your point, you know, the next time we have an economic downturn, that labor supply is actually going to go up. Like, again, I think there will be more gig economy jobs. I think it's one of the ways that our economy is transforming. 
Um, there's obvious concerns about that. There's no benefits, clearly. Uh, healthcare is not universal, and there's no benefits with being an Uber driver. So that's one issue. Um, pay is another issue, what you actually are making after you deduct all the expenses that are your own uh, liability. There's all these issues. Um, but I certainly think these types of gig economy jobs are, are going to become more plentiful as our, our work shifts. I mean, work is no doubt shifting as um, digitization and automation and AI take over a lot of good jobs that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now it's time for hard knocks. We're going to take a look at some of the hot takes in tech this past week, Uber-related. First up, Uber founder Travis Kalanick getting denied the opportunity to ring the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange Friday when the company presumably goes public. Um, he can be there, but up on the platform where the bell's getting run, that's going to be Dara, not Travis. And uh, I mean, we know there's quite a bit of historical controversy around Travis Kalanick's role, but it's kind of a hard knock, isn't it, Dina? It is. I imagine this is a tough call. I mean, Dara has done a tremendous amount of work to rebuild the culture. Um, he'll talk about culture issues, and he's really talking about Travis issues, and he inherited a lot of them. He's done a lot to change the company's reputation and distance himself from Travis. At the same time, you know, Travis did build Uber into what it is. Uh, it wouldn't be Uber without Travis. So, um, you know, I think this was could have gone either way. I mean, there was would be something nice about you know, noting his contribution at the same time, Uber and Dara are really trying to say we're a different company <laughs> than it was under under Travis. So, uh, you know, maybe there's some middle ground here. As you say, he can be there. He just can't be on ringing the bell. I don't know if he'll actually show up uh, to have a lesser role. That also doesn't seem super Travis-y. It would be kind of classy, though. And plus, it's hard to cry too hard for Travis as he sits down there and counts out what, like $2 billion worth of personal valuation uh, uh, you know, that suddenly become more liquid or would soon, I don't know. And uh, how about Lyft? Shares down pretty considerably since its IPO. Um, Uber was looking like it might go public at a much higher valuation until Lyft came out. And, and everybody had been saying, oh, good for Lyft, getting out there first. Ugh. Well, it turned out to be not so great for either of them. Yeah, I mean, I think if Lyft had waited, it might have been worse for Lyft in the sense of I think they got the benefit of this was your first chance to invest in ride sharing as a public investor. So I, I do think they probably made the right call for them. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there were some people that didn't want to wait for Uber that invested. So I think I, I totally get their rationale. Um, you know, at the same time, all the things that we've said about Uber and the challenges of their economics apply to Lyft plus their subscale. Yeah, worse. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a much tougher sell. I'm not, you know, being a kinder, gentler Uber, that might play for riders as a marketing campaign. I don't know that that plays for investors. So yeah. it, it's a, certainly a tougher call. Um, you know, they've certainly tried to make the case for that. Again, it's a, it's a better marketing campaign anymore, than it is an know? investor strategy. I don't, I don't know if well, it works and anymore, because Uber's no, now a Uber's kind of gentler Uber. And with Uber. these strikes and stuff happening, I mean, I, I see Lyft thrown in there just the same as Uber. It's not like the riders are striking against Uber and saying, but Lyft is wonderful. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Lyft is arguably putting so many driver incentives out there that they are depressing the price of a ride-sharing ride. Right? 
Well, I mean, they're both. I, I think there's plenty. You know, Uber and Lyft are certainly spending money to take share from one another. Um, and, you know, as they're both going public, they both have incentive uh, to do that. And, and we're seeing that. Again, I think, you know, it is tough. Uh, the economics for Lyft, it's tough to make the case. How is it better to be a smaller Uber from yeah, a dollars and cents standpoint? And to your point, I think, you know, Uber has staked out the kinder, gentler Uber under Dara. <laughs> so even as a marketing campaign, it's tough. And don't forget, in a lot of cities, certainly in San Francisco, drivers are drivers Driving for, for both. both. Yeah. They have both systems and so they're very sensitive to who's offering them a better deal that day and that competition does put pressure on the economics for the companies and i think that affects uber and lyft pretty equally yeah it's kind of like being like well you know we're like mcdonald's but we don't serve fries and we have no drive-through and that's our competitive advantage i don't know maybe they can figure it out uh Ina, thanks for being with us uh follow you know on twitter at Ina Freed. And finally, sticking with the theme of the future of transportation, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mobileye's co-founder and CEO, Amnon Shashua. Mobileye, of course, owned by Intel. They do computer vision, particularly when it comes to cars. And we're talking about what's next in autonomous driving, what's going to separate the eventual self-driving winner from the rest. Take a listen. Amnon Shashua. Uh, co-founder, CEO of Mobileye, senior vice president at Intel. Thanks for sitting down. Thank you, John. For Fort Knox and CNBC. So you guys have some news. Um, you announced back in the fall that you're working on autonomous driving in electric vehicles in Israel with Volkswagen and Champion Motors. What, what's your ambition there? You, you're going to be like the, the Uber of autonomous so, electric you know, cars? So this project actually is a joint venture with uh, Volkswagen to commercialize autonomous driving in Tel Aviv. So now you can think about it from a mi minimalistic point of view or maximalistic. The minimalistic is this is a good opportunity, a good sandbox to productize our self-driving system, the technology, the sensing and high-performance computing, the software, you know, the algorithms, you know, the mapping end-to-end self-driving system, and this mm -hmm. is an opportunity to productize it. And then we go and sell this technology to whoever wants to build an autonomous car. Sure. The maximalistic point of view is to look at this as a sandbox to then later expand worldwide. There's a big difference between those two points exactly. of view, though. One, you're just doing a little project to prove out your technology and show right. people what it can do. And the other one, you're kind of taking over the world. Exactly. So and, which, and, which and, is it? And this is the big news. Okay. That, you know, for the past six months, we've been doing a very, very deep study, deep dive study, about the economics of a mobility as a service. What is really the game-changing element going from a human-driven ride-hailing service, which is today's ride-hailing service, to a robotaxi uh, service, where you now the, 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 the driver today is about 80% of the economics. Once you remove the driver and you replace it with CapEx, the cost of the car, the cost of the technology, and you can, you can have cost of technology of a few tens of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. and still create a game-changing uh, effect. Game-changing in terms of the discount that you can provide on the current ride-hailing uh, business. 40 to 50% discount on the existing ride-hailing uh, service and still make a viable business, uh, viable in, in terms of uh, a high profitability. And this is really game-changing. So what's, though, the key 
strategic asset there. Because if you ask Uber, they'll say, oh, well, we've got the app on everybody's phone. We've got the brand and we've got the relationship. And so, you know, we'll be able to fold in that technology and we'll be the ones who profit. Tesla, you know, Elon Musk was just saying, oh, we're going to be a $500 billion company on autonomous driving because Tesla owners are going to be letting other people ride around in their cars. And that's going to make it. And you're saying, you know, from a different point of view, that you've got the strategic asset. So which is it? So when we talk about robotaxi, there are many strategic assets. First, the technology of building a self-driving system is not something that anyone can do. I believe eventually it will converge to a small number of players, single-digit number of players that you know, had the capability of building the technology, validating the technology, working with regulatory bodies on, on, on finding the right regulation, uh, to put these cars uh, on the road and there are, there are huge challenges on building a self-driving system with all the liability ar around it. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that, for, for example? Just the so, insurance and liability issues. This is the RSS that, that we talked about back at, at, the, at, at the CES, where we build a safety model, a, a formal safety model, published it. We're working with regulatory bodies around the world in formalizing and, sta and standardizing the safety model. Uh, so this is one element. The second element, you need to provide agility. These cars need to drive in an agile manner because otherwise they'll block the city. No city would want you know, many cars like this blocking traffic. That, that I worry about because if everybody were a good driver, then autonomous vehicles, I can imagine, would work beautifully. But I grew up in New York where it's, it's sort of like survival of the fittest on, on the roads. And I hear you know, some places in Israel, it's similar. Very so similar. How do you account for drivers who are gonna do crazy, unexpected things, cut people off, you know, disobey traffic rules? Are the autonomous vehicles going to be able to keep up or will they end up blocking traffic? But this is the challenge and we have a solution for this challenge. That the way our model works is that we go and formalize what it means to be in a dangerous situation. Once, once you can formalize this, and, and you need to talk with regulatory bodies on, on standardizing the parameters of, of, of this model. Once you formalize what it means to be in a dangerous situation, the autonomous car can reach the threshold between non-dangerous and dangerous, never pass that threshold. And allowing you to reach that threshold gives you the ability to be agile, gives you the ability, to, for example, to change lane while forcing another driver, driver to slow down. This is what we do in congested traffic, right? We don't just turn the signal and wait for other cars to, to give us space. We force our way, but in a way that is careful, right? You don't just, you know, jump in and the other car needs to, to uh, apply emergency braking. So the, the, the rules behind what it means to do a maneuver which is agile yet careful needs a definition. With humans, we don't have this definition because it depends on societal norms, depends on, 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 on legal precedences of past accidents. But with machines, we need to formalize it. Otherwise, the first accident that will happen will kill the industry. Mm. As we saw with Tesla, for example, they, they, they create a lot, a lot of attention. And the best way to, to handle this from a, a, a public trust point of view, regulatory trust point of view, is in advance to come and say, these are the rules of the game. This is what a human, a careful human driver would do, have the regulatory body agree with us or modify it, but reach an agreement of what a careful human driver would do. And a careful human driver is also agile. It, careful and agility are not mutually exclusive. Right. You can be agile yet, yet careful, but you need to formalize it. And this is what the RSS does. So this is another element, which is, is it, it, it comes to talk about comp competitiveness, because if 
your vehicles are agile, you can go from point A to point B faster than other vehicles that are not agile. So is, is this going to destroy the value of ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft? Well, if, if you look at what Uber and Lyft are doing, they clearly state that the next phase of their evolution is having robotaxi. Mm -hmm. Because they also understand the, the game-changing effect of robotaxi. It's not that we all, all of a sudden discovered the game-changing uh, effect. But when we look at robotaxi, robotaxi, let, let me take a step back. When you look at autonomous driving, autonomous driving has really two transformative phases. And, and they need to go one after the other. They cannot go simultaneously. Mm -hmm. The first transformative phase is robotaxi. Yeah, the, the transformation is the cost per mile that goes down considerably and reaches the cost per mile of, 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 of car ownership. That, that's, a tra that's, that's transformative. For robotaxi, you can have a cost of a self-driving system of tens of thousands of dollars. This is, this, is, this is fine. It's a capex investment, it's fine. But this is not fine for, uh, for passenger cars. Passenger cars cannot, you know, cannot put a technology that costs ten, tens of thousands of, of dollars. Right. Somebody needs to make a profit and so forth, so eventually it will reach the consumer hundred thousand of dollars. So there should be another phase. That other phase will come when the cost of the technology, the cost of the self-driving system, goes down by an order of magnitude, ten times. Ten times? Ten times, so a few thousands of dollars. Once the cost of technology is a few thousands of dollars, we, we reach an, another transformation in which passenger cars, at first it's only premium passenger cars, but passenger cars can offer an option of, say, $10,000, $15,000 option, where whenever you want, you can sit in the back seat. Right. Now, this, transforma this transformation relies on two things. One is bringing the cost of the self-driving system to a few thousands of dollars. Second is scaling up mapping. You but need to be able to drive from everywhere, from any point to any point, not only in a geofenced area. That makes sense, but what I'm trying to figure out is, in that world, what do we need Uber and Lyft for, right? If, if we've got Mobileye and Intel that have the technology to enable autonomous, and we've got Volkswagen and other car companies that are providing, if not brand new cars, then constantly updated cars, putting them on the road. I mean, do we need a company that's an intermediary getting I mean, at first, humans to drive their own cars and do this service. What's the need for that middleman? Well, when, when on top of the self-driving system, in order, to, in order to create a mobility, to create a service, there, there are many additional elements. There is routing optimization, there is demand analysis, where to place the robotaxi at a strategic position such that when a customer hails for a, for a service, within a minute the car uh, arrives at the point. Uh, handle peak, uh, peak hours, uh, mixed fleets, um, teleoperation. At some point, the car may, may get stuck, so you need a human in the loop, right. one human per, say, dozens of uh, robotaxis in order to either call first responder or do something uh, about it. So th th there are many additional elements, and, and the new story that, that we're putting on the table is that we as Intel, we're going to partner, develop, acquire all those necessary elements on top of the self-driving system, which we're already developing, in order to create a mobility as a service business. So you're uh, going to acquire the, the route mapping capability? Acquire, develop, partner. Uh, for every component, one of those things will, will happen. Well, uh, which you choose matters quite a bit to, to people who might be thinking about investing in, in ride-hailing companies, right? Because if you're partnering with them, okay, maybe that's not so bad. If you're acquiring technology or service, say from Google, 
which has its mm -hmm. own uh, mapping system and knows where cars are, that allows you to do that, well, that's something else. Which are you going to end up doing? It, it all, it's a case by case. It, it all depends on, so we, we are studying all what's out there, mm -hmm. making uh, our own decision of what makes sense to develop, what makes sense to, to acquire or, uh, or, or partner with. And uh, it will unfold ov over time, but this is definitely as, as part of the game plan. How to, what are the additional elements on top of the self-driving system that are required? And the, the Tel Aviv launch in 2022 is a very, very important sandbox because that launch includes a complete mobility as a service. It's a service launch, it's a commercial, it's not a pilot, it's not a testing. No drivers are going to be behind the steering wheel and we need to provide the full, the full service. That will be a, a very, very important sandbox in order for us to build, uh, to build this uh, service. You've got autonomous vehicles on the road right now. Testing. Testing. Just like all other competitors of ours. Uh, there's, a there's a safety driver behind. Uh, what, what, what is, uh, I think, unique in what we are doing in terms of uh, testing? First, we're testing those vehicles in very challenging conditions. You know, driving in Israel is challenging. Driving in Jerusalem is more challenging than driving in Israel. Now we're driving in very uh, uh, in scenarios where lots and lots of people not respecting the rules of the road, mm -hmm. uh, narrow streets, roundabouts, and and with very very assertive driving of other human drivers. Second, uh, we are building the system which is it's camera centric. We are we are able to provide a complete end to end capability using only cameras and then adding ladars and radars as as a redundant subsystem. Mm -hmm. But really, the, the primary, the, the centric element is, is the camera system. This gives us two things. One, it gives us the redundancy for uh, validation with a reasonable number of, of miles. Second, it gives us transferability to driving assist. Driving assist is the volume business. It's tens of millions of cars. In a volume business, you cannot imagine systems in a car that cost more than a few hundreds of dollars. And if it's camera-based, then we know it's the maximum, it's a few hundreds of dollars. Mm. You, can, you can equip a car with surround cameras, high-performance computing, and it will not cost more than a few hundreds of dollars. And you know what you're talking about, because not only are you an entrepreneur in this area, you got a doctorate and did postdoc work, right, at in MIT, computer, yeah, vision. computer vision. You still a professor? Yes, still a professor. So tell me about it, because you got a lot of jobs, right? Yeah. Hebrew University, right? You're a professor. That's right. And uh, you're a senior vice president at Intel, and you're co-founder and CEO of Mobileye, which Intel bought. And you got another company. Yeah, Orcom. Yeah. yeah. We, we do uh, AI, computer vision for the visually impaired. Okay. So yeah. take me back. 1995, I believe, was your first startup. Yeah, right? Cognitense. Right. Yeah. So um, how do you go from academic to entrepreneur? Well, you do both. I think what, <laughs> uh, what is unique with uh, my experience, because there are many academics that, that founded companies, mm -hmm. is that I do Not both. Not all of them are billionaires, but okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I do both. Yeah. I, I, I maintain a 100% activity in academia. I have students, graduate students, master's students, PhD students, uh, publish a lot. And at the same time, I, 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 I'm an entrepreneur and I run a business. And the reason I do both, because these are really complementary activities. As running a business, you need to think from a strategic point of view. You mm -hmm. need to see a few years ahead, 
Uh, the time is very, very important. It's not just the amount of investment, it's the amount of time that takes you to reach a point. You need to build a, a, a large team, a hierarchy. It's not just a professor and few students. You can do big things that you cannot do in, a, in academia mm -hmm. in terms of making a huge impact. In academia, on the other hand, you need the details. You need to understand the material in, in very, very high levels of, of details, right? You need to prove a theorem. You, you, it's not something that you can do at, at a high level. And I enjoy doing both. I That's see how the, they're conceptually yeah. complementary, but logistically, I mean, I, I don't, they happen in different places generally. At least I, I think they do. Yeah. I don't often meet entrepreneurs in their office at a university yeah. in between kind of student so, visiting So hours. the Hebrew University is five minutes away, so yeah. it's very, very easy for me to, <laughs> to jump from office to office. I, uh, lately, in the past few years, I bring students to my Mobileye office and I give them sandwiches when they leave. So I kind of <laughs> incentivize them to, to come to my office and, and I say five minutes of, of travel. But again, the, the, the location are very, the, are very, very close to each other. Tell me about that first startup and what you learned from that experience about the, well, clearly viability, but also challenges of having it all, of, of being an academic and an entrepreneur and continuing to pursue both. Well, the, the first startup still exists today. It employs uh, 70 uh, employees in, in Tel Aviv. It's called Cognitens. It was sold to Hexagon, a Swedish industrial uh, company, back in 2007. From a financial point of view, it wasn't a huge success. It was sold at a price, more or less, the amount of investment that was, that was made into the company. But I learned a lot. Okay. I learned, uh, I, I learned how to fail. I learned how to recover from failure. Where was the I failure? Learned, uh, wrong definition of the product. Hmm. It was defined in a way that uh, the technology worked. You know, it was the technology worked, but the definition of the product was uh, was wrong. We didn't. So what did you What did you define it as, and what should you have defined it as? So it was the product was uh, a, uh, a an optical probe of multiple cameras that you put on a uh, on a conveyor and take photographs of large automotive parts, like a bumper or like a uh, full car, mm. and create a three-dimensional rendering and an accuracy of tens of microns. Oh. Very, very accurate, yeah. such that you can see whether the press has gone out of alignment or not, and then stop the production. So the technology, which was the mathematics behind taking those pictures and, and building a very, very accurate three-dimensional three rendering, see, we're talking about 1995. Today, 3D is ubiquitous and so forth. Mm -hmm. 1995 was the beginning. The way we, the way we, we assembled the product, we assembled the product in a, in a stationary machine with a very, very long uh, you know, tube holding the probe. Uh, you, need to, you, you had to build a, a, a special place in order to hold the, the product. And we had one customer agreeing to this design. And our mistake was that you know, we, we didn't think, we weren't customer obsessed. We didn't go and, and talk with other customers. We said, okay, we have one leading customer agreeing with this design, let's build a product. Because if you had, you would have what? Had a, a, a more portable, no, a more portable. A more portable machine, product. More portable, okay. so, so di di different problems to solve, but more, more portable, which eventually this is what, what, what we did. But we did that after a big failure. It, it, uh, it was a traumatic moment, which I learned a lot uh, from it. And then, my second company, uh, Mobileye, all, all this, all this lesson learned, put them into Mobileye, and I had a great also partner uh, with me, Ziva Viram, my co-founder. 
Um, it, uh, I also learned that being alone is very, very difficult. If you have a, a strong partner with you, it, it creates uh, a much uh, smoother uh, experience. How do you know when you have a strong partner? Well, this particular partner, we were very, very good friends. We would ski together. We were motorcycle. We had uh, motorcycling experience together, uh, mountain biking. So, so by doing sports together, you kind of learn the the character of the person. Mm. And uh, so, I, I really trusted that this is the right uh, person, and uh, that was correct. It, we we did together. Were your skills the same, or were they complementary? Very, the... very complementary. Okay. Right. Well, my partner was was a, a people's person. So I could focus on the technology, he can focus on you know, managing the, the employees. Uh, he, was, he was very, very good at finance. So all the, 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 the fundraising of the company was something that he did very, very well. And, and my strength was on the strategy, thinking farther into the future, where, where the technology can lead us, what would be the definition of, of the, the, the roadmap, and of course, executing it. What, what would be the technology, how to build the technology to execute uh, a very, very ambitious uh, roadmap. So this partnership worked very, very well. How do you handle the prejudices in the academic and the entrepreneurial constituencies against academics and entrepreneurs? Because from, from what I've seen, in academic institutions, there are always people who are skeptical of those who are making too much money, right? And, uh, and having too much commercial success. They're not grounded enough right, in the, or they're trying to get over. And then likewise, in uh, the entrepreneurial world, people who have their heads in the books are thinking, oh, well, they're not maybe into the actual nitty gritty of, of putting their nose to the grindstone and knowing how to run this business day in, day out. They're not totally committed. Yeah. Well, you know, envy is a very, very powerful, uh, powerful uh, feeling. So one way to, uh, to counter is that I was a very, very good citizen in the academia. Mm. I was the head of my department. I was the dean of the school. Um, I published much more than my, than, than my peers. So no one could come and claim that you know, I'm not focusing on my academic career while working on... on, on and it means that I didn't sleep, right? I, I worked <laughs> as <laughs> two people in one. Mm. On, on, the, on the industrial side, you know, Mobileye was, was very, very successful. That means we did something right. We had a, a very ambitious uh, roadmap. Uh, uh, we executed uh, well. Even today, 20 years after founding Mobileye, we're still the kings of the hill in, in what we're doing. Um, how many more companies are you going to start? So I have uh, Orcam. I'm, I'm looking at uh, additional, um, additional challenges in AI related to natural language understanding. I think this is the next uh, big thing, being able to read a story and, and understand it at details. Hmm. This is the next level of, of intelligence. Today, AI is very, very narrow. You know, you know, recognize the car in a picture, do voice uh, to text, uh, search. These are very, very narrow uh, problems. If you are able to read a book, like War and Peace or Game of Thrones or, and, and understand it in details, being able to answer questions in, in details, you have captured much broader intelligence. I a lot think of people is, can't do that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lot of people. Reading comprehension, it's, it's, it's a hard test for, for a lot of It's a hard test, yeah. You have it in SAT and it's, it, these are really tough tests. Yeah. So if you, can, if you can have a computer pass that test, which I believe is not science fiction, I believe within five years we can do that. Within five? Even less. So within five, you'll be able to have a, a software explain, you know, the cockroach uh, and, and what that really means 
So you can have software that, that could read long text, transform it into a state in which, given that structure, you can answer questions, deep questions. About, about existentialism and... About whatever is in that uh, text. And with the, with, the, with the common sense and the common knowledge that uh, humans have when reading text. You know, like, like uh, you, you understand physics, you understand that if you have an object and you leave it, it will fall on the floor, right? That there's lots of common sense and, and common physics uh, that, that, that we have when we read text. Machines can do that as well, not today, but within a few years, I, I believe can do it. And, and this interests me. So, so how another do you area use that, that technology at. in ways that are both, or how do you ensure that it's used in ways that are both moral and ethical because there are, there's great potential for manipulating individuals and societies if you're able to think in, in that type of abstraction. We've seen people do it in history to marvelous yeah. and terrible effect. If somebody can, I don't have to be a great orator myself, I can have the, this computer move the crowd and, yeah. and maybe even voice it too. Well, I, th this is why autonomous driving is such a beautiful thing because it is really a a very natural case study for artificial intelligence. It has all the components, including ethics, all the components that, 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 that you need to grapple with when you're talking about artificial intelligence. It has perception. You need to understand the world around you. So all the pattern recognition that we humans do effortlessly, which are very, very difficult to do, a computer needs to do. It has decision-making. Merging into traffic is decisions, right? You are, you are negotiating with other road users. You are making uh, decisions. Should I give way to that vehicle? Should I take way of, uh, to that vehicle? Um, this is all, all decision making. This is also a, a pillar of artificial intelligence. It has the notion of ethics. Right? I'm, go I'm going to make decisions. Those decisions can lead to an accident. What should I do? Right? Not make decisions at all, uh, then I, I'll, I'll, I'll stay put, I'll, I'll, I'll not drive. So this ethics of AI, you find it also in, in autonomous uh, driving. What, what's nice about, auto, about autonomous driving is that this is a huge AI problem that has a huge business. Mm -hmm. It has a huge transformative business. It has a business that, that helps society. It will reduce accidents. It will transform the way we own cars. It will transform the way we move from point to point. It's also somewhat binary. You know, did it work or not? Did you get there or didn't you? Did one car hit another? or didn't it, right? Whereas in, in other situations in life and society, we don't always know if an accident's happened until much, much later. Is that something that we, sh we don't have traffic lights in our conversations with one another necessarily no, know I'll, if someone's been I'll, I'll, hurt or offended? No, I'll, I'll, or... Tell you, I'll tell you the, the big difference. The big difference is accuracy. Hmm. So for example, if, now if, if your smartphone crashes, nothing happened, right? So you'll, re you'll reboot it and, and, and that's it. And you'll move on, right? right. With cars, you cannot afford that. Yeah? You cannot afford mistakes, right? especially when I'm talking about an autonomous car. So the, 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 the level of accuracy that you need to reach with your AI are really unprecedented when you think about consumer products. You, 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 you cannot afford failure. You need to make sure that you have the right redundancies. You have the, what is called functional safety, nominal safety. You have to guard against the, uh, failure because humans' lives are at stake. When your computer crashes, no human life is, is at stake. I think this is, this is the big difference between the AI for autonomous driving and the AI of algorithms for you know, 
recommending commercials when, I, when, when I'm you know, going on social uh, networks. Right? Yeah. This, this is the difference. Well, you're a multifunction thinker and academic, so I wonder what you think the worker of 10 to 20 years from now will need to excel. Is it similar to the past where um, drawing connections between different subject areas, different disciplines, and, and being as rapidly creative as possible is going to be good enough? Or in this environment that we're talking about, a software getting smarter, um, do humans need a different playbook? I think so. I think the first thing that humans need to do, they need to learn how to write code. So <laughs> for a young person, I would say, learn to write code. Okay, so as software well, is learning you need to, to do, understand yeah, books, need, we yeah, need to write Software, it's, yeah. li it's like learning language, yeah. right? You go to school, you learn, a, you learn a, la a second language, you need to learn how to write code. That's the first Some people thing. aren't good at a second language. What happens to those people? Uh, well, you have to make an effort. Okay. Okay. Second, I think what the difference within the workforce on, on say, 20 years from now and today is agility. You need, to be, you need to be able to switch from areas to areas to areas within a press of a button. Mm. It's, not, it's not longer going to be the days in which you learn a profession and you retire with that profession. Things will change rapidly. Machines will do much of the, the, the grunge work for us, the, the mental grunge work for us. So we need to be better than machines. We need to, to know how to work with the machines in order to achieve more than what we achieve uh, today. So it's like you know, uh, having a calculator. Mm -hmm. right? Rather than you know, doing with a pencil and, and, and paper doing the, the calculations, you have a calculator. So now you want to do something more than just you know, multiplying numbers because the calculator is already multiplying numbers for you. So now you want to solve equations. Right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. the same thing here. If, 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 if you have a machine that can read text and understand it, and, and write for you an article and write for you an article, then you need to think what's my added value over what the machine is doing. Does that make art and the liberal arts more important or less? It's a difficult uh, question. I think art is something that it's like it's like music. Humans need it. It's never going to go away. Machines are going to help artists you know, cut corners and, and, and be more innovative uh, with art. For example, today machines can, can draw pictures. So you, you can train a deep network on paintings of a certain style and then ask the, the, the deep network to uh, propose a, a new painting. I so you can use that new painting as an artist and then on top of it, put your own, put your own thing. If you didn't play sports, you might never have known that your partner for Mobileye was the right person to work with, right? Because you had skills and interests outside of pure right. academics, yeah. you were able to bring that knowledge to bear in a way that was very profitable for you. Does that work in multiple areas? Sport, athletics, art, being able to synthesize uh, facts, ideas, truths to come to a solution? So do those things become more important in our effort to, to stay ahead of the software and the machines, or do they become less important because we got to spend more time coding? No, it becomes more important because agility, that, that, that's how agility uh, emerges. Agility emerges because you have more, you have experience in, 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 in multidisciplinary things. Right? You play sports, you do arts. It's, it's going back you know, to, to 1,000 years ago. Right? So being able to be a man of all trades 
would be very, very important for us to be able to switch from domain to domain as technology progresses. As machines can do more and more, we need to be able to harness those machines and to do something that we couldn't do before. Well, from a corporate executive, entrepreneur, academic, uh, I will take that advice. Amlin Chashua, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, John. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.